You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour, a 60-minute weekly program bringing you news from a variety of sources. This one's being recorded on the 23rd of December for the listening week that begins the 24th. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey. Let's begin with recent articles from blackenterprise.com, posted December 16th, Harvard names new president, first black woman to hold top job. This was written by Ross Kerber and Dan Whitcomb, Dateline, Boston. Harvard University on Thursday named Claudine Gay the school's Dean of Faculty Arts and Sciences. As its 30th president, the first black person and the on, pardon me, and only the second woman to hold the job, Gay, the daughter of Haitian immigrants who joined Harvard as a professor in 2006, succeeds Lawrence Beckow as president of the prestigious nearly 400-year-old Ivy League University. She will take over in July 2023. Claudine is a remarkable leader who is profoundly devoted to sustaining and enhancing Harvard's academic excellence. Penny Pritzker, Secretary of the U.S. Commerce Department under President Barack Obama, said in a written statement she is also the chair of the search committee. Gay, 52, will step into the job in Cambridge, Massachusetts as the university faces challenges to its admissions policies. The U.S. Supreme Court has agreed to consider a 2014 lawsuit claiming that Harvard violates the U.S. Constitution and discriminates against Asian students by considering the race or ethnicity of applicants. Many legal experts believe the conservative-leaning top court will agree. Harvard argues that eliminating race as a consideration would hamper its efforts to create a more diverse student body. The university has also been criticized for so-called legacy admissions favoring children of alumni, big donors, or athletes. With the strength of this extraordinary institution behind us, we enter a moment of possibility, one that calls for deeper collaboration across the university, across all of our remarkable schools, said Gay in a written statement. Harvard's website lists tuition for full-time students as $54,768 per year, although many students are eligible for grants or scholarships. The university, with an endowment uh, for 2022 of $50.9 billion, was founded in 1636 and is the oldest higher learning institution in the United States. It counts eight U.S. presidents among its alumni, including Obama. Next one was posted December 13th says, written by Black Enterprise Editors. Kingmakers of Oakland receives $4.8 million from Chan Zuckerberg Initiative to Transform Learning Environments. Kingmakers of Oakland, 
is on a mission to improve the lives of black boys and build a stronger education system for all students. The Chan Zuckerberg Initiative is committing $4.8 million to bring their comprehensive research-backed school improvement approach to more schools and districts across the country, according to a release. Kingmakers works hand-in-hand -hand with districts to help them get a full understanding of their community's unique needs. They partner on building the capacity of schools to make improvements, helping teachers form deep relationships with students that ultimately increase learning and life outcomes. In Oakland, Kingmakers established a strong track record of improving student outcomes, said Sandra Louis Huang, pardon me, head of education at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. They are a national leader in helping school districts apply research to transform the culture and conditions of a school to increase student success across the board. Launched as the African American Male Achievement Program, AAMA, in the Oakland Unified School District back in 2010, Kingmakers later became an independent nonprofit. A 2019 study of AAMA by researchers at Stanford University showed that students who participated in Kingmakers programs were more likely to graduate high school. The same study showed also a positive impact on students who didn't participate in a specific Kingmakers program, but who benefited from school-wide improvements as a result of their school's partnership with Kingmakers. Kingmaker's comprehensive approach is grounded in six drivers of systems change. Culturally relevant pedagogy and curriculum, black male teacher recruitment, training and retention, youth voice and leadership, community and family engagement, narrative change, and policy change. Within this framework, their focus is shaped by local needs. From its inception, Kingmakers has used listening exercises and assessments to design programming tailored to each district in order to foster lasting change. Christopher Chapman, founder and CEO of Kingmakers of Oakland, observes, Changing systems and changing narratives takes multiracial, intergenerational, and cross-functional collaboration among educators, students, families, communities, and policymakers. When we combine their knowledge with what the research tells us about the type of environments that help students thrive, then we can truly build school cultures that set every young king and all students up for success. Standing with the growing community of partners, CZI is working to equip teachers with the research, tools, and partners they need to center students' well-being in support of academic achievement and success. For more information about how CZI and our grant partners are supporting student and teacher well-being, visit chanzuckerberg.com slash education slash well-being. Next one's posted December 22nd, written by Stacy Jackson. If you're in the Ohio area, 
Black Chef sells soul food out of Ohio gas station. It's not often that you find a spot where you can stop for gas and grab a bite of soul food at the same time. Dominique Ian LaShawn Boykin, self-taught chef and creator of Dinner by Dom, is serving his cuisine inside Akron's gas and save station to address the lack of soul food options in Northeast Ohio. According to the Akron Beacon Journal, Boykin was drawn to the culinary arts industry as a child. Watching family members and television chefs whip up savory recipes, the Akron resident began his entrepreneurial ventures in 2015 with his Not Your Nana's Banana Pudding Recipe, launching Dinner by Dom from his home. After cooking out of his home kitchen for seven years, a friend presented him with the opportunity to open up in the new kitchen space a month ago. I do everything on my own. I cook alone. Nobody is with me in my kitchen. I have no training, just a gift, he said. I've never gone to culinary arts school, so I'm running off support and word of mouth. Dinner by Dom presents a modern take on traditional Southern classics, Boykin describes his business as soul food with a flair. Customers can choose from soul food dinners and sides that include pot roast, mac and cheese, green beans, cornbread, wings, and loaded fries. Additionally, Chef Boykin offers catering services for events and businesses. I would say my company's success is evolving. I am a humble, passionate, transparent, spiritual business owner. I want to franchise and be able to employ people from all walks of life, he said. Boykin has accumulated over 48,100 social media followers across multiple platforms. I'm just a keeper of the garden and I'm here to plant a seed, a seed of mindfulness, a seed of positivity, and a seed of you are worthy and can be whatever you'd like to, he added. Gas and Save is located at 863 West Exchange Street in Akron, Ohio. Next, posted December 20th, written by Derek Major. Task Force to Study Reparations for Blacks in Boston gets unanimous vote. Boston NAACP president calls it historic. The Boston City Council voted unanimously to study how it can provide reparations and other forms of atonement to black Bostonians for its history of slavery and discrimination. The Associated Press reports the city will now form a task force for the study, which is part of a growing movement by states to discuss reparations Reparations supporters in Boston cite the city's history of racism and discrimination, including supporting slavery after Massachusetts abolished it in 1873 and its history of segregated housing. This ordinance is only the start of a long-awaited yet necessary conversation. City Councilor Julia Mejia said, according to the AP, 
The city of Boston, she went on, like many areas around the United States, has profited from the labor of enslaved African Americans and has further disadvantaged them by barring them from participating in the same economic mobility opportunities as their white counterparts. The vote has been celebrated by civil rights advocates, including Tanisha Sullivan, president of the Boston chapter of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, who called the vote a historic and important step forward on what will be a deliberative, robust, and inclusive process to help our city better understand the role it played in supporting the enslavement of black people in the United States. Other cities that have begun reparation plans include Evanston, Illinois, which has tied its plan to housing and cities, pardon me, has tied its plan to housing, and cities in California where the state's nine-member reparations task force is set to release a report to state lawmakers early next year. Outlining Recommendations for State-Level Reparations Boston's Reparations Task Force will study different reparation models, the disparities that have hurt its black residents, and collect data on historic harms committed by the city. The task force will also hold public hearings so community members can comment on the discrimination they've faced. The Boston Task Force will recommend forms of reparations as well as the potential to eliminate policies and laws that hurt black Boston residents to this day. Additionally, the task force will suggest ways that Boston can issue a formal apology to black Bostonians for its history of racism, discrimination, slavery, and human rights violations against slaves and their descendants. In Boston, the idea of reparations was first brought up in the 1980s by former Massachusetts Senator Bill Owens, the state's first black senator who died earlier this year. Next, also written by Derek Major, posted December 21st, Rex Richardson pledges to address racial inequities as first black mayor of Long Beach. On Tuesday, Rex Richardson was officially sworn in as the first black mayor of Long Beach and pledged to address our pardon me, housing crisis, our economic and racial inequities, and our changing climate. Richardson, 39, defeated fellow city council member Susie Price to succeed Robert Garcia, who was elected to the House of Representatives after serving two terms. CBS News reported Richardson's ceremony was attended by some of the state's top politicians, including new Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass. During his speech, Richardson acknowledged Bass's presence and pledged to work with her on the state's homelessness crisis. Richardson also added that he would call the city manager to declare a state of emergency on homelessness in Long Beach after Bass declared a state of emergency on homelessness in L.A. last week. I accept your call to lock arms with you and confront our city's shared challenges, said Richardson to Bass. Imagine a moment when two mayors from the two largest cities in the region 
are aligned on values and working together to get our unhoused neighbors off the street and chart an equitable recovery for the future of our region. We will turn this vision into reality with Mayor Karen Bass as our neighbor. According to the state, more than 160,000 residents are currently homeless, which accounts for nearly one-third, 28% of the nation's homeless population. Richardson has been a mainstay in Long Beach politics ever since he became the youngest city council member when he was elected in 2014. The Cal State Dominguez Hills graduate served as student body president and a union organizer for SEIU Local 721. The Long Beach mayor was paramount in the construction of the city's first municipal homeless shelter, which included supportive bridge housing that has helped unhoused individuals move off the streets. In addition to Richardson, City Prosecutor Doug Hobart, five city council members, as well as a city attorney and auditor, were also sworn in on Tuesday. Also by Derek Major, this was posted December 19th, Veteran Entrepreneur Scholars Program is helping veterans start their own businesses. A new program at William and Mary's Raymond A. Mason School of Business is taking a boot camp style approach to help veterans become entrepreneurs. The Military Times reports the William and Mary Veterans Entrepreneurship Scholars Program was launched earlier this summer with a pilot enabled by an anonymous alumni gift. The program aims to teach veterans how to start and run their own businesses as the number of entrepreneurs has skyrocketed since the 2020 COVID-19 pandemic. An Intuit QuickBooks study shows more than 17 million new entrepreneurs joined the economy in 2022, and veteran-owned businesses are rising. In recent years, we've seen entrepreneurial thinking skills, mindsets, and practices to be increasingly essential no matter what role our veterans take on. Graham Henshaw, the Allen B. Miller Entrepreneurship Center Executive Director, said in his release, he went on, This hands-on, real-world program delivers a distilled, applied experience that equips these leaders to tackle challenges of consequence more effectively. Jonathan Dew, the executive director of the Center for Military Transition at William & Mary, said getting veterans into entrepreneurship can lead them down different paths, including starting a business as a primary means of income or as a second revenue stream. Charles Williamson, an Army veteran seeking his MBA at William & Mary, was a part of the pilot program as he and a friend are developing a game that teaches tactical skills. Williamson said the program has shown him how much planning and execution go into a successful business. The military is great at teaching you to deal with setbacks and challenges, but not really the actual specific skills like meeting with investors or incorporating a business, Williamson told the Times. They teach you how to do an interview, not how to raise capital. But through this program, I learned a lot of things that I needed to learn. Notable veteran-owned black businesses include Air Force veteran 
Charlinda Scales's Mutt Sauce, M-U-T-T. Marvin Johnson, a former Navy submarine officer and the founder of and CEO of Dashable, and Tabitha Terman, an Army veteran and CEO of IFAS-LLC, IFAS-LLC, a professional services firm. The first official class of this program began in November, and the school plans to keep the classes small so each group can collaborate and provide peer support. The program is also working on creating an active support system for follow-up after veterans graduate from the program. Moving to our next source for this week, theroot.com. This was published on the 22nd, written by Keith Reed. Here's what some newly elected black mayors want from the White House. The Root spoke with several mayors who traveled to D.C. last week seeking funds to help their cities. Affordable housing, clean drinking water, transit and mobility. Those are just a few of the issues that newly elected mayors from across the country went to the White House late last week to tell the Biden administration they'd like help with once they take office. In total, some 14 mayors representing cities as distant as Long Beach, California, Brooklyn Park, Minnesota, and Providence, Rhode Island, convened with the Secretaries of Labor, Housing, and Transportation, as well as the White House's American Rescue Plan Coordinator, the Director of Intergovernmental Affairs, and the National Climate Advisor. With Democrats losing control of the House after the new year, the likelihood that the Biden White House can pass any new measures to help cities is slim. But three of the mayors the Root spoke with exclusively in between their D.C. meetings said they hoped to take advantage of initiatives already in place like the $1.7 trillion infrastructure plan to remedy long-standing issues that have detracted from the quality of life in their cities. Augusta is no different than most metropolitan areas, and you know we're tackling some of the same issues as it relates to crime, as it relates to affordable housing, to workforce development, said Garnet Johnson, the mayor-elect of Augusta, Georgia, who takes office on January in January. So I'm here to learn more about how we can get the resources to tackle some of those issues. Johnson said he hoped to land federal funding to help Augusta, which is 56.5% black according to the U.S. Census Bureau, attract and retain law enforcement, as well as funds to upgrade a dam along the Savannah, Savannah, pardon me, the Savannah River, which is critical to the city's shipping and tourism industries. Philip Jones, who's already been sworn in as the new mayor of Newport News, Virginia, said the Biden administration's plan to address long-standing racial inequity in federal policy dovetails with one of the top priorities of his administration, addressing transit and mobility. As in many cities, several of Newport News's black communities were cut off from essential services and economic activity by the building of interstate highways decades ago. 
Jones wants a grant under the federal Reconnecting Communities Pilot Program to kickstart a proposed bus rapid transit route that would connect those communities to Amtrak's recently opened intermodal transit hub in the city. Jones said, There were things that were done, you know, decades ago that we're still feeling the effects of. If you live in the central part of Newport News, you only have a five-minute commute. So why, if you live in the north or the south, should you have a 45-minute commute? And I think we look at the underserved pardon me, communities. I'm a man of faith, so I believe that the least of us, they should have access to reliable and secure public transportation that is going to allow them to have high-paying jobs. Meetings at the White House for new mayors are nothing new. Under administrations of both parties, there's always been a dance between local elected officials with funding needs and a White House with political messaging it wants taken back to the local electorate. While last week's meetings were pretty status quo along those lines, what was pardon me, what wasn't was that Congress had already approved large chunks of new funding for projects that previous mayors could only have hoped for. For Pamela Goins-Brown, the mayor of North Las Vegas, Nevada, the hope is for funding to get new affordable, pardon me, the hope is for funding to help get new affordable housing built in a market where such units are scarce. She said, if you can get that money to be readily available, then you can start planning those developments and you can, you know, put that money into the hands of the people that need it and you can move that dial. She noted that HUD Secretary Marsha Fudge had recently visited North Las Vegas. Next, the Black Census Project needs your input, like right now. This is written by Keith Reed, published the 22nd. Before 2022 winds down, veteran activist Alicia Garza hopes to gather intel from 250,000 black folks in the U.S. on the issues we care most about. With just over a week left to go before 2023, the organizers of an effort to tally a comprehensive accounting of the political, economic, and social priorities of black folks in the United States are looking for your help in crossing the finish line. The Black Census Project aims to reach a quarter million respondents before January 1, 2023. But the initiative's name is something of a misnomer. Instead of a headcount of the number of people in the country who identify as black, the project's goal is to generate enough data from a statistically significant number of black Americans so that the responses can be used to create an unofficial national agenda. This agenda would then serve as a basis for advocating for specific public policy outcomes ranging from funding projects that best benefit our community to lobbying politicians to include certain issues of black interest in their political platforms. The effort is the brainchild of activist Alicia Garza, a co-founder of the Black Lives Matter movement, who now leads the Black Futures Lab, the organization that is compiling the survey. 
In an interview with The Root, Garza acknowledged that similar efforts had been undertaken before, including a survey her, pardon me, her organization conducted in 2018. What makes the current effort different, she said, is its scale and that there are specific plans already in place to act on the results in the form of lobbying local and state-level lawmakers for concrete policy results. Most surveys that you encounter probably talk to between 800 and 1,000 people and then say, We did a poll of black people, said Garza. This project is really geared toward breadth and depth. We are going to make sure that in cities and states where there's lots of opportunity and possibility to change the lives of black people right now, and that we're organizing in communities to make sure that these proposals become laws in cities and states. Unlike the decennial census last conducted by the federal government in 2020, the Black Census Project's survey is being completed entirely online. Participation is voluntary and anonymous, although some questions do ask for basic demographic information such as year of birth, the state you live in, and what, if any, gender a respondent identifies as. The survey includes a range of inquiries from ranking respondents' opinions on the favorability of political figures and institutions to open-ended questions about the best ways to immediately improve conditions in black communities. If you'd like to participate, the Black Census Project is available online through December 31st. And that's easy to find at blackcensus.org, spelled B-L-A-C-K-C-E-N-S-U-S dot O-R-G, all one word. Next article, published the 19th, written by Kaylin Womack, still reading from The Root. Airbnb announces a ban on slave cabin rentals. The concern over slave cabins listings dates back to 2019. In a long overdue announcement, Airbnb says they will no longer allow people to list properties that were previously used to house enslaved people, according to BuzzFeed News. Over the summer, a TikTok exposing a slave cabin listing in Mississippi went viral. Now every slave-related listing will be swept from the rental site. The new policy states any listing of a residence on a plantation, quote, if structures that existed during the time of slavery are still present on the property, will be taken down, the listing, according to the report. Additionally, any structures built for the purpose of housing enslaved people will be barred from future listings, and renters will be prohibited from using a property's, quote, slave-related features as a marketing tool. That means no more cozy cabin with charming history listings. Ben Bright, an Airbnb spokesperson, told BuzzFeed they are actively being taken down. 
The site-wide ban follows the company's new anti-discrimination initiative called Project Lighthouse. Discrimination and bias unfortunately happen in our world, so they can play out on platforms like Airbnb, and that's unacceptable to us. We want everyone to feel safe and welcoming, pardon me, safe and welcome using our platform. We believe you can't fix what you don't measure, so we're using Project Lighthouse to help us uncover disparities among perceived racial groups and inform our work to help make Airbnb more equitable for people of color, said Janae Ingram, Airbnb Director of Community Partner Programs and Engagement. The following quote is from BuzzFeed News. Evan Feeney, a Deputy Senior Campaign Director for Color of Change, said Airbnb's new policy was an industry-leading prohibition on the glorification and marketing of slavery that they hope other vacation rental platforms will emulate. Color of Change first reached out to Airbnb in 2019 about plantations where people were enslaved being rented out on its website, according to Feeney. The company came under fire in July this year over a, quote, slave cabin listed on its platform after a TikTok about the rental went viral called the Panther Burn Cottage on Belmont Plantation in Greenville, Mississippi. The listing described it as, quote, an 1830s slave cabin that has also been used as a tenant sharecropper's cabin and boasted the building's, quote, wide cypress boards that are original to the first build in the 1830s. Airbnb began exploring a policy on slavery-related properties and experiences following the TikTok, said Bright, end quote. Though this initiative is a step in the right direction, Airbnb had the opportunity to address this slave cabin issue when it was brought to them three years ago, what was the holdup? Before this announcement, there weren't any restrictions on Airbnb hosts that would omit slave cabins from being rented. On the other hand, it's not like the plantation property owners care about who's renting the quarters anyway, since they often repurpose the mansions and fields as wedding venues. That is why organizations like the Slave Dwelling Project have been fighting to make sure these structures are remembered for their historical significance and not whitewashed like the rest of 1800s American history. And I believe our final one from The Root this week, posted on the 22nd, written by Jessica Washington. Family of Emmett Till and Mamie Till Mobley, quote, overjoyed, over Congressional Gold Medal. The House unanimously voted on Wednesday to award both Emmett Till and his mother and activist Mamie Till Mobley with the Congressional Gold Medal. Emmett Till's horrific lynching in rural Mississippi at just 14 years old shocked and horrified the nation. His legacy carried on by his mother, the late, great Mamie Till Mobley, helped wake up the country to the tragic realities of anti-black racism in the United States. 
Now the pair are finally getting the congressional recognition they deserve. On Wednesday, the House unanimously voted to posthumously award the Congressional Medal to Emmett Till and his mother, Mamie. The Senate passed a bill awarding Till and Mamie the medals last January, according to the Associated Press. Their remaining family members were overjoyed by the announcement. You can't understand the modern civil rights movement without understanding the story of Emmett Till and Mamie Till Mobley. The Congressional Gold Medal will further acknowledge their lives and sacrifices and keep their legacy alive, said Reverend Wheeler Parker, Jr., cousin and best friend of Emmett Till, and last living witness to Emmett Till's abduction in a statement, he said. He also noted the historic legislation finally banning lynching that was passed earlier this year in Emmett Till's honor. Mamie would be overjoyed at this moment, knowing that the posthumous award of the Congressional Gold Medal is a testament to her courage and lifelong work, preserves the memory of her son, and will continue to inspire future generations, said Ollie Gordon, cousin and goddaughter of Mamie Till Mobley and vice president of the Till Institute Board. Emmett Till, a 14-year-old black boy from Chicago, was brutally abducted, tortured, and murdered by two white men while visiting family in rural Mississippi in 1955. Witnesses say they saw him whistling at a white woman, Carolyn Bryant, enraging both her husband, Roy Bryant, and his brother, J.W. Milam, who then murdered Emmett Till. If not for his mother's bravery... Emmett Till may have been forgotten. Mamie made the decision to have an open casket for her son's funeral, willing the world to see what racism had done to her baby boy. From there, Mamie continued to fight against racism, giving speeches across the country, demanding racial equality and uni pardon me, unity among black people, what happens to any of us anywhere in the world had better be the business of all of us, Mamie proclaimed in the years after her son's death. Senator Cory Booker lionized the civil rights leader who passed away in 2003 and her son in his speech after the vote. He said, The courage and activism demonstrated by Emmett's mother, Mamie Till Mobley, in displaying to the world the brutality endured by her son helped awaken the nation's conscience. This was in a statement to the AP Press, he went on, forcing America to reckon with its failure to address racism and the glaring injustices that stem from such hatred. Our next article comes from scalawagmagazine.org, written by Anoa Changa. This was posted back in October. How We Save Ourselves, Interventions Beyond the Ballot Box It takes more than an election to save ourselves, let alone democracy. It will take more than a single electoral victory or an additional pro-people candidate elected to change the status quo Voting is just one of the many tools in our toolbox to effect meaningful change in the South. At the start of Episode 4 uh, of 
As the South Votes, we are joined again by Brianna Brown and Dwight Bullard from Episode 3, who share ways their respective organizations build capacity and engagement beyond the ballot box. I'll break in to say this is a transcript of a podcast. Both of their groups employ micro-interventions year-round to help leverage the voice and power of underrepresented communities. For Bianna and the crew at the Texas Organizing Project, TOP, one way they work to break the cycle of a disempowerment is by helping local residents in their target counties participate in different boards and commissions. These bodies are often involved in decision-making outside of the designated state or local legislative body. But it can be a challenge for regular folks to learn about these opportunities, let alone get appointed and serve. TOP combats this challenge, T-O-P, by building out pathways for year-round participation. While the organization turns out the vote at election time, the organizers are preparing to help people stay involved in the process and work on issue-based campaigns. Dwight spoke with us about how Florida Rising makes use of people's assemblies for decision-making as opportunities for a more participatory decision-making process. People's assemblies create free and open space for regular folks to think through the issues they are passionate about and develop strategic approaches to address them. They also give Florida Rising members a chance to explore potential opportunity points for further engagement beyond a particular election or a political action. In the second part of this episode, we turn to rural North Carolina. Dreema Caldwell, co-executive director of Down Home North Carolina, talks about her experience making the move from being an interested community member to leadership of an entire organization. She came to the work as a directly impacted person first, dealing with issues around her own experience with cash bail, before joining various working groups with the organization. A one-time candidate for Alamance County Commissioner, Dreema witnessed the power of electoral engagement in her community during the 2020 election cycle. While she did not win her election, she felt she found her calling after conversing with community members who had never voted or had withdrawn from the process entirely. We spent our time with people who didn't vote and wanted to know why. We heard that they didn't understand that they had been voting for years and their lives had never changed, or they were wrongly informed that they were permanently disenfranchised because they may have had a past felony conviction, she said. As we began to spend time with the community, people who were not engaged in politics, people began to get excited. Dreema also touches on the growing pains and challenges as a newer organization, providing insight into some of the steps Down Homes leadership has taken after internal staffing issues happened prior to her becoming executive director. She doesn't make any excuses, acknowledging the need for the organization to step back and do some internal development around management and hiring. She said, Down Home is a place where race and class is something that we knew we had to be intentional about. We did the work to learn what we needed to learn and to look at our own processes to see where maybe 
they were preventing equitable hiring or they were things that we needed to add. DREMA also notes the importance of supporting organizations throughout the state in the 2022 midterm election cycle, notably rural areas. DREMA estimated that at least 80 out of 100 counties in North Carolina are rural. You cannot find a clear pathway to victory without investing in rural areas, she said. It's this myth that rural areas are more racist. I think that rural areas aren't more racist. They're more prone to racist activity because if we aren't organizing in those areas, the far right is organizing in those areas. And so we have to have another narrative for people. We have to have another avenue for them. She shared that as much as people talk about popular big-ticket races, it is equally, if not more important, to raise awareness around down-ballot races. She said, I see a larger strategy where we're not paying attention to what's going on locally, but I think that in order to get people to really participate in this democracy, we have to show people that they're, that they're what's happening in their community. Pardon me, I'm going to have to figure this sentence out. Um, I think we have a typo here. I'll start over. But I think that in order to get people to really participate in this democracy, we have to show people that what's happening in their community is important. Our next article comes from a source called OutThereColorado.com, written by Gregory Scruggs for The Seattle Times posted December 17th. This Washington woman is working to make the world of ski instruction more inclusive. Othell, Washington, Dateline. When Annette Diggs arrived at the slopes in the winter of 2017 and 18 for a Pacific Northwest rite of passage, a beginner ski lesson in the Cascades, the experience was not what she had anticipated. Diggs said, the first time I stepped on snow, I saw how exclusive and homogenous that space was. As the only black person in her group lesson, she said, my presence and ability was scrutinized by the people I was learning with. Rather than remain discouraged, Diggs saw the, pardon me, saw the experience as motivation to make a change. She said, I decided I would, pardon me again, I decided I wanted to become a ski instructor. I knew I wanted to provide that representation for people who look like me. Five winters later, the 42-year-old Bothell resident is a part-time ski instructor at Stevens Pass and the founder and CEO of Edge Outdoors, a nonprofit working to diversify the stereotypically white male space of snow sports. From the first-timers on the magic carpet to the faces working in the rental shop and the powder seekers heading into the back country. This season, Edge offers scholarships to cover ski and snowboard lessons, instructor training, avalanche education, and free ride camps. Parentheses, skiing ungroomed terrain. For women, non-binary, or gender non-conforming people of color. We take people you've, who have never slid on snow and give them a safe learning environment. Then, 
offer them ways they can maintain access to the mountain, said Diggs, with opportunities that rise to the upper echelons of snow sports. She said, inclusion has to hit every level. From Memphis to Mountains Resolve in the face of adversary might just be Diggs's defining trait. That mindset turned a first-time skier into a ski instructor. It also got her on skis in the first place. Over Labor Day weekend in 2017, Diggs was making her way, painfully, down Mount Adams on foot. As she continued what seemed like an endless march down the snow-covered southern flank of the volcano, three skiers zipped past her. It made me so livid. My toes were hurting. My back was carrying this big backpack, she said, and there they were down the mountain in seconds. Watching backcountry skiers make quick work of the vertical descent on Adams kindled a drive. Diggs said, I'm going to learn how to ski. Growing up in poverty in Memphis, Tennessee in the late, pardon me, in the 1980s, where she was sent across town for school desegregation busing, Diggs had little exposure to snow sports beyond white classmates returning from vacation with goggle tans telling tales of exotic destinations like Mammoth, California. I was this black girl and my parents couldn't afford to take me to these places, she said. Diggs's family later moved to Las Vegas, where she spent hours in the library, immersed in National Geographic and Adventure magazines. I was inspired by it all, seeing someone hanging from a cliff by their fingers, dropped off by a helicopter, and sliding down a massive mountain, hiking in faraway places, and beautiful, almost unrealistic landscapes, she said. Again, resolve. I carved out a place in my mind and heart as a child that I want to go after those things. But the outdoor media of the 1980s and 1990s featured few women, much less people of color. She said, I had no role model. I became my own sense of inspiration. After graduating from the University of Memphis with a degree in biology, Diggs eventually took a laboratory job in Seattle as a microbiologist testing with foodborne pathogens in 2013. A colleague invited her to Mount Rainier for her birthday, Diggs's first visit to a national park. I didn't even know you can go and visit national parks, she said. My mind was completely altered. That up-close and personal encounter with the mighty Tahoma led her to hiking and non-technical mountaineering with local clubs like Seattle Outdoor Adventures and the Mountaineers. Like with skiing, though, expensive gear was prohibitive. Diggs recalls wrapping her shoes with zip clothes bags in lieu of proper mountaineering boots. Regardless of the gear, the experiences were rewarding. Every time I went outside, I saw how strong my body was and what I was capable of doing, said Diggs. School's in for winter. When it came to instructing, Diggs dug into that resolve once again, eager to stand, uh, pardon me, eager to start on her quest to diversify snow sports. 
She applied to teach at Stevens Pass the same winter she learned to ski. I'm an athletic person. I could ski greens and easy blues, said Diggs, referring to the least challenging downhill ski slope classifications. I thought I'd be a good fit for youth programming, teaching first-time kids as an assistant. Alicia O'Donnell, manager of seasonal programs and private lessons at Stevens Pass, is used to a pretty standard answer to her question about motivation when interviewing prospective ski instructors, which is, I like to ski and ride. So when Diggs shared her life story, O'Donnell took note. She still recalls the interview nearly five years later. O'Donnell said, I remember her being very bubbly, open, and honest. The fact that she had a larger vision than just, I want a free season pass, was refreshing. From that first season, Diggs availed herself of employee skills clinics and ample time on the snow. She said, The growth has been exponential in my skiing. Although she eventually became a certified instructor, personal growth was not the only goal for Diggs. When I was hired at Stevens Pass, they believed in my vision of bringing more people out there, she said. People like Victoria Ochido, 30, a nursing aide in Everett, originally from Kenya. Her first ski lesson didn't go well either. It was a very awkward and uncomfortable situation, said Ochido. All I wanted to do was learn how to ski, but I felt like I had to go through a lot of hurdles that took away the joy. I was one of the first black people to ever take lessons from there. I got weird questions and felt a sense of loneliness. In 2021, Ochito gave it another shot under Diggs's tutelage. Annette is very wholesome in her teaching style, very easy, free. You can breathe, said Ochito. I wasn't able to make, oh, pardon me, I wasn't afraid to make mistakes. She would always encourage you to a higher potential. If you fall, she would give you time to get it together. Her spirit is so vibrant, it consumes your fear and exhaustion. This winter, Ochido plans to work on weekends in the rental shop at Stevens Pass to get a free season pass and push herself to spend more time at the ski resort. After making the effort to learn something new as an adult, she said, I don't want to disappear from the sport. Denver-born Lizzie Lane, 24, learned to ski two years ago at Oregon's Willamette Pass while studying at the University of Oregon then moved to Seattle for a tech marketing job. Lane, who identifies as mixed race, was fortunate to have a positive learning experience and wants to pay it forward to other people of color. She stumbled across Edge Outdoors on Instagram and attended a fundraiser over the summer at Ribbons Brews in Ballard. Diggs greeted Lane at the door with glitter. Not your typical ski bro move. Ski culture, especially in Seattle and Denver, is very gatekeepy, said Lane. Annette made me feel super included and validated. Diggs is also persuasive. When Lane dismissed the idea of teaching because she only had two seasons under her belt, Diggs countered with her student-to-instructor trajectory in one season. This winter, Lane will be on the roughly 250-instructor roster at Stevens Pass. O'Donnell estimates that 15 to 20 percent of the 90 or so new hires this season are people of color. 
I want to continue the work of changing the culture of skiing. Who looks like a skier and who doesn't, said Lane. I want people to feel comfortable asking me for advice and tips because I'm someone they can potentially relate to. For Diggs, these small wins are part of a long game. Diggs said, The success of the ski industry was built on white supremacy. We're talking about a culture shift, but I believe one day we will have a more diverse workforce and be able to retain it. Ski areas are actively working on it. And that brings me to the end of our time for this week. Thank you for joining us. This was the Black Experience Hour. AINC programming is made possible in part by the generous donations from the Joslin Charitable Trust. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.